Go with me. So what I've learned over the years is that in churches, we have kind of like this insider language. You know, we, we use words and phrases and things that people outside of these walls may not typically understand. I mean, for example, you've heard people talk about asking Jesus into your heart. Make Jesus your Lord and Savior. And there's the trifecta of justification and sanctification and glorification. You know, where else do we gather to eat a body and drink blood? And so sometimes people outside of our circles don't understand all these terms. In fact, a lot of times we inside the circle don't understand all the terms. And we're going to be looking at some big words today. It can be often part of this insider language. But the goal is for us to see and understand that these things explain what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And we want to find hope and joy and comfort in knowing more thoroughly what he has done for us, for you and for me. Most of you are aware I don't spend my weekdays at the church's office or even primarily on church property doing church things. I am a full-time church member, but a part-time church staff person. And so I spend my weekdays working a nine-to-five corporate office job. And, you know, in my, even in my, my office, we tend to have this kind of insider language. A lot of it is made up of what are known as TLAs. Anybody else have TLAs at your, that stands for three-letter acronym. You got the TLAs such as, uh, if, I, if I were to talk with people in my office about DPS, G, CGT, GPT, MEF, or CXP, they know exactly what I'm talking about. But yet, maybe you have a similar lingo at your workplace, insider language. And like most businesses trying to succeed in today's world and markets, my company is constantly changing. And to inform these changes, we're constantly evaluating our processes, our products, our people. In fact, we're in the time of year in our current calendar year where we're uh, giving and receiving uh, reviews, you know, performance reviews for how you did over this past fiscal year. But I'd say all this to highlight the fact that we do live in a performance-driven culture. We live in a world where we feel defined by our performances and our successes. However, there's a danger when we take this mindset of performance and apply it to the spiritual world. And that's where we get the grounds for legalism. So this begs the question, if we acknowledge that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then why do we find ourselves behaving as if our salvation depends on our performance. How well do I need to perform in my Christian duties to retain favor with the Father? You see, we need righteousness to be acceptable to God, but we don't have it. What we have is sin. So God has what we need and don't deserve, righteousness, and we have what God hates and rejects sin. So what is God's answer to this situation? So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll have this on the screen 
This is such a crucial, this is our one verse for today. We're going to read it and look at it in context. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll read that again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians of the past have commonly referred to this as the great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. It doesn't seem like a fair trade. It really isn't. And while the Bible does have some insider language, the Bible also borrows from the language of culture. And in this case, we're going to see in this passage as we look at it, and really coming down to this verse, some language borrowed from the legal world. Words such as justification, reconciliation, and imputation. So when understood correctly, this truth provides us comfort. It provides us joy. It gives us hope and a perspective around how we need to or don't need to perform to receive favor with God. So I do want to read it in context. I do want to see where where Paul's coming from when he gets to this verse, which is at the end of this chapter. So we'll jump back to verse 17, which is likely a familiar verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus, where he changed direction. There was a, he became a new creation, and new creation, true conversion, results in true life change. However, we can't let this feed again into the performance mentality. What Paul is speaking about here is, he's speaking about it matter-of-factly, passively. When we become a new creation, no person makes themselves into a new creation. It is something that has happened for them and to them when they are in Christ, We look again, we continue at verse 18. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If we had no doubts before, he makes it clear, all of this is from God. In our society today, again, people want others to get what they deserve. You get a promotion because you deserve it. You get fired probably because you deserved it. You get the part in the play or uh, you make the team because you performed better than others that were in the competition. But all of this is from God. It's he that has reconciled us. He moves from this to, to talk about this ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Here's key, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we got the message of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. This message, in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. This last command, be reconciled. 
It's passive again. It's passive, not active. It's not something we are doing. It's what is God is doing in us, through us, to us, for us, but not by us. And as we are reconciled, we have the joy of sharing this message of reconciliation, this good news, this gospel of what it means to be reconciled. So we've built up here to get now back to our one verse, which we learn here is right out of this, right following this command about be reconciled. So this reconciled or reconciliation, this big legal word, is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Read it again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Starts out by saying, for our sake. You see, there's nothing commanded in this verse. There's actually nothing in this, there's nothing in this verse that we are expected to do. But yet, he opens by telling us that this is for our sake. We're There's definitely something going on here that is being accomplished for us, for our benefit. And what that is, is in that next phrase, he made him to be sin. This is why it was important for us to read the context. Because we got some pronouns here that we're not sure exactly what they refer to. But we easily look back right into our context to see, this is talking about God the Father making him, God the Son, to be sin. And as we celebrate Father's Day today, I mean, what a gift is that? God the Father made God the Son to be sin for you and me. Truth, so what does it mean that God made him to be sin? Well, I think this goes back to the reality of a moment in time of what happened As Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why would God the Father turn his back on his only son, the son he loved, the son with whom he was well pleased? For in that moment, Jesus became sin for us. Paul shares the same truth in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We're redeemed from the curse of the law because he became a curse for us. And what is the curse of the law? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death. We earn death. In our working The wages, what you get for your work, is death. And yet Christ became that death. Christ became that sin. You ever made a mistake that was then attributed to someone else? And you're like in that tension of like, ooh, do I I take credit for that? Do I let them just take the fall? Especially like if that mistake resulted in some sort of consequence. You know, there's some things that are in a sense like, oh, you know, that did, I, you know, whatever. But have you ever watched someone suffer because of something that you did? How did Christ suffer? Isaiah 56. Surely he has borne our griefs 
carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the trespasses of all of us. This is what it means for him to be made sin. Again, it's not, not right here in our uh, ESV translation, which is where I'm coming from this morning. But the legal term of what is happening here is imputation or impute. Merriam-Webster might be a little helpful here. To impute is to lay the responsibility or blame for something, often falsely or unjustly, on another. Dictionary also says the impute is a somewhat formal word that is used to suggest that someone or something has done or is guilty of something. It's similar in meaning to words such as ascribe and attribute, but it's more likely to suggest an association with something that brings discredit. The other words here in this context are count. You know, we don't count it. When we we looked back, he says, not counting their trespasses against them. Another word can be used to reckon, not reckoning them against them, not the King James says not imputing their sins against them. But so in our case, God imputed, counted, reckoned our sin to Christ and therefore does not impute it, does not count it, does not reckon it against us. You see, if we are new creation, then we are reconciled made right in such a way that we stand justified before a righteous judge. So there's another one of our insider language words, justification. And in this context, in this aspect of justification, you may have heard before, but this is easy to help us remember what it means to be justified here. And it's just as if I'd never sinned. When God looks at us, he sees us just as if We'd never sin. That is, if we are this new creation in Christ, we stand before God without sin. But what about Christ? Did he sin? Well, that's the next phrase. Who knew no sin? The Bible tells us that Jesus was without sin. It says he was tempted in every way that we were but yet without sin. So what happens when God makes Jesus to be sin? Does he then become a sinner? Well, it's interesting, the order of words here, because I think they're important, because Paul follows the statement that he made him to be sin and then says, who knew no sin? The immediate thought would be to say this is Christ's previous state, but I would say that's not the case. 
And for us to come to understand this, now this is a little bit of a challenge. I'm going to make you guys think this morning. We're going to approach this from two different aspects. We've been talking about the legal motif. And then we're going to talk about a moral motif. We're going to talk about it viewing this from a legal perspective, then viewing it from a moral perspective. So consider it this way. God legally imputed, counted, reckoned our sin to Christ, while simultaneously Christ retained his moral purity. He carried the weight of our sin. He carried the penalty of our sin without experiencing that moral guilt. Christ never became prone to wander. But he remained untainted in his moral perfection because if he had moral impurity, then he would not be qualified to stand today as our advocate, as our great high priest. And why is this important? Why is it key to understand it and to see this in two different ways? I'm glad you asked. So that, and in fact, don't you, don't you like it when someone's telling you a story, you're, you're reading a narrative, and you've got a question why, and the author anticipates it? That's what Paul has done here. He anticipates, maybe you're going to ask a question why about this, and then he gives you the, so that. Four-year-olds in the room rejoice. They finally found their answer to why. Because you see, when Christ is made sin, we are made righteous. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. So we see here a second and simultaneous imputation. Some call it a double imputation because just as God imputes, counts, reckons, our sin against Christ, he also imputes Christ's righteousness to us. This is the other half. We, you said we call this the great exchange. This is the other half. Not a fair trade, but our sin for his righteousness. It's like if you remember when you were in school and perhaps... This wasn't everybody's experience, but I remember the times we'd be sitting in class and all of a sudden the teacher would say, we're going to have a pop quiz. And you're thinking, I did not study for this. I am not ready. And so, hands out the papers, you take your quiz, and you realize you did not do very well. You did not know the subject as well as you thought. They collect the papers, grade them, and return them back. And there's your paper in the upper right corner. A plus, circle around it. A little bewildered, you say, there must be some mistake. Oh, I know, they gave me the wrong paper. You look up to where the name goes, and sure enough, there's your name. But it's not your handwriting. Because just below your name has been crossed out, Jesus. So Jesus took the test for you, and he got an A+, and you get the credit. 
Jesus obeyed his parents because he knew you couldn't. Jesus avoided all unwholesome talk because he knew we wouldn't. Jesus never had any inappropriate physical or emotional relationships because he knew how prone to wander we are. And so he has accomplished that on our behalf. This is the other half of justification. Because not only do you get the, do you, does someone else get the credit for your mistakes, but you get the credit for someone else's accomplishments. Just a minute ago, I said you can remember justification justified by saying, just as if I'd never sinned. But it also means in our justification, we are justified. We are just as if I'd always obeyed. And when God looks at us, that's how he sees us. He doesn't just see a zero balance in the bank account where all of our debts have been paid. Because not only has the debt been erased, but now there's money in the bank. And it is Christ's unlimited account. Okay, Nathan. How can I have the righteousness of God and still be so prone to wander? Lord, I feel it too. So to make sense of this, we return to the importance of looking at things both legally and morally. The good news, the gospel of reconciliation that this verse teaches us is that when God looks at us, he sees us as legally blameless. He sees us in Christ. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and not our filthy rags. He sees us as a people that have met all the legal standards of obedience and conformity to his commands. The same obedience that caused God to look down from heaven to say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He is saying over you. But what about morality? about this moral perspective. We have all sinned. Hope if you deny that, you're lying to yourself. Is God incapable of seeing our sins? Of course not. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. The point is not counting them against you. Let's just take, for instance, our pastor. I hear he's a North Carolina Panthers fan. I'm not going to count that against him. But just the same. God doesn't count it against us. Just knowing that about us does not just means that he's not behaving and he's not responding. Because there is, although there's penalty for sin, not this sin, this sin has already had its penalty paid for in Christ's death on the cross. So when God looks at us, with all the affection and good pleasure that he has with Jesus. And so, there are no, when Paul wrote his letters, there were no chapters and verses, right? And so even though we're at the end of the chapter here, I think chapter 6, verse 1, may be a little help us for us. 
2 Corinthians 6.1 says this, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And so that's my appeal to you today. Do not receive this grace of reconciliation in vain. This grace of your sin put on Jesus and his righteousness put on you. Religion could be spelled this way. D-O, do. This is what religion is all about doing. Reconciliation could be spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. Stop working for favor. Start working out of the overflow of all that God has done for you. We don't pursue righteousness as something to be attained. We pursue righteousness because it's what we are. So tomorrow morning as you walk into your place of business, and I know this illustration doesn't work for everyone, but imagine you were given a notice that the boss wanted to see you. No further context or explanation. Does your heart skip a beat? Do you start thinking back over last week, your performance? Do you assume the negative, the positive? Where do you come up on that? Thanks be to God this morning that, and any morning, that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, knowing that we may receive mercy and help in our time of need because for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We stand this morning absent our sin and with the addition of Christ's righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father, even I this morning have struggled with performance, with acceptance, and yet you have already accepted me, and my performance is that of Christ. And it is such a struggle, for it is not a struggle for me to know that my sins have been paid for, but it is hard for me to understand you are happy with me even when I fall short. That the grace and mercy of God is more than anything, than any problem I could ever have. So we come to rejoice this morning in our reconciliation, that we have been made right with you, and that you have both paid the penalty for our sins, and you've credited Christ's righteousness to us. We want to return praise to you for that. Sing hallelujah to rejoice. You are worthy, and you have shown your worth through this, your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Would you stand with me sing?